you're listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Here's your host, Randy Wilson. Hello and welcome to Rock Bottom Radio. Today's show will be a little less goofy because recent events have been entirely too serious for our usual comedy. Our topics will include something I've never revealed before, the true story behind my amazing success at managing greens with a tiny budget and virtually no crew. The mad golf prophet will offer up his last prediction. And because it's Halloween season, well, story time will offer a somewhat offbeat but timely tale of horror. Before we get started, remember we're sponsored by DryJack, the most brilliant method ever invented for managing putting surfaces. And also TurfNet, the sensible, affordable alternative to tossing thousands of dollars into the alphabet chaos every February. Get on and I object. That's here, son. Overruled. Continue, Willie. Okay. And now, a never-before-revealed, highly-classified rock-bottom secret. Our comprehensive skeletal strategy for good greens on a tiny budget. Not everything I confess here will be usable in most modern golf operations, but if we go into a period of economic, environmental, or social dislocation, you might find something that could help. Just like there are brilliant superintendents with a friction-driven five-gang and a turf tractor stashed in the back of the shop for emergencies, What follows are a few strategies that help me survive various shortages of money, parts, fuel, chemicals, and good sense. Before I blurt all this out, I will admit to engaging in industrial espionage of sorts in order to remain well below the clubhouse complaint radar. In September of 98, after Gary Reddy and I had completed a major overhaul of Sugar Creek, a redesign for recovering from constant flooding involving raising certain fairways by three feet and Repositioning tees to take advantage of newly installed drainage mechanisms, I had a visit from Pat O'Brien, the director of the USGA Green Section Southeast. In the subsequent turf advisory report, Pat wrote, Randy's Crenshaw putting surfaces at Sugar Creek are truly some of the finest in the Southeast region at this time. Now, I'm not bragging here, it's just that this is significant, because Pat and I were not friends. There's no way he would say anything complimentary about my work unless he was forced to by his ethics as a scientist and a professional. See, Pat was still mad about the time we had a meeting on a course with the owners from Tokyo, and I said, Pat, before we begin, tell everyone how many golf courses whereupon you have been the superintendent. And Pat glared at me and said, Now, Randy. That meeting was based on a disagreement we had regarding how much water it took for push-up adobe-bent greens to survive the hottest Atlanta summer on record. No, not modern hottest ever. That's just fake news. It was really hot back then. Stretches of 100 degree days with no rain for entire summers hot. You know, African hot. Pat was also angry that I wouldn't reveal my trade secrets for greens management. It wasn't that I was stingy. It was mostly because I knew all my fellow superintendents would laugh at me. Except for maybe Mark Hoban, who, by the way, is about to be added to the Georgia Superintendents Hall of Fame. How about a round of applause for Mark? With that said, here are my rock-bottom trade secrets for skeletal greens. I always maintained, ready to deploy on a moment's notice, a dedicated greens-only spray rig, which was as small as possible. Never, ever did I allow a 300-gallon unit on my greens. The ruts that seemed like they weren't happening at the time always showed up later, during top dressing. It's hard to see that manifest itself unless you're actually operating the sand thrower. Now, in the early days of skeletal greens, that sand thrower was a shovel. Therefore, we saw the ruts materialize right before our eyes. 
Water weighs 8.34 pounds per gallon. 300 gallons is 2,500 pounds. It's more than a ton. That's a lot of weight to drag over a soft green surface, especially if your tires are selected by idiots, which often happened to me if I had to go through a purchasing entity. If you haven't had that pleasure, these are the folks that changed my order for 50 bunker rakes to 50 pitchforks because they got a better deal. I had one spray rig arrive without the flotation tires I had specified, replaced by solid rubber tires the width of a boot. I realize there are superintendents out there who say 300 gallons on the green is no problem. Okay, great. More power to you. But given the potential for accidents on steep, slippery green surrounds, especially the surrounds designed by some architect mostly for photographic effect, and who incidentally has never been a superintendent or had to spray the greens they design, the kind where you have to back onto the green because that numbskull put bunkers in the collar on both sides. Anyway, it's easy to slide sideways on a steep gradient, wet because of rain or irrigation and all that weight riding high. Well, the damage factor is high. Another point to consider, no matter what your turf professor said, the evapotranspiration rate does not exist in the Deep South. There is no evaporation here. Humidity is 94% every day, except for two days in October. If you don't know what 94% in direct sunshine feels like, stick your face in warm dishwater under a heat lamp and breathe deeply. Here's a little known fact. Darwin's theory came to him while playing golf in Georgia when an advanced rhizoctonia fungus grew legs and chased him for several holes. So don't count on dry in the south. This next part is important. Isolate the green spray rig and make it off limits to all personnel except the equipment manager and the spray tech. Booby trap it with what are known as tells, invisible indicators that someone has opened the tank without authorization. I've seen superintendents fired for being too slack on this because someone always either wants your job or just wants you gone. Do not leave the rig running unattended, say, during lunch. The spray tech should be handcuffed to the green spray rig until the tank is empty. As to what to spray, I use mostly granular apps because... Object! Object! Anecdotal! Anecdotal! Shut up, Cletus. Now, I know this will put me in the crosshairs of folks like that turf truth doofus, but anecdotal can be good. Because, well, I trusted other superintendents more than I trusted some lab coat who's never been in the superintendent's seat. Anyway, I kept inputs to a minimum, especially wetting agents. At first I thought they were miracles, but then I noticed a little spike in disease pressure on the greens that got more wetting agent than the others. I'm sure wetting agents have improved drastically since the mid-80s, but I would still keep a wary eye on them. Objection! Objection! Anecdotal! If you open your mouth one more time, I'm going to knock out your last two teeth. Just do it anyway. Now on my greens, which were 60% red clay, I had great results with granular nitrogen and this stuff called solucal. I know, I know, anecdotal blasphemy. That statement requires 10 years of testing and research. Well, some things don't. Some things are injected into society with virtually no testing. Really? Oh yeah, I forgot. Anyway, ask yourself this question. Did white lab coat guy run a golf course with 40,000 rounds and get Pat O'Brien who wanted me dead to say I had the best putting services? No white lab coat guy just sits in his lab. Another thing, find a lab you can trust. I tested all the labs I used by falsifying the samples. For instance, say I sent in 20 green samples to a college lab. I always labeled a couple of samples as greens, which in fact were actually taken from way out in the pine forest, and one maybe from the parking lot at Kmart. Several times they came back with all the greens reading pretty close, which told me some lazy pot-smoking grad student just tested two samples and hit copy-paste or whatever. More important than chemicals is sunlight and wind. 
No, those giant fans are not practical, but chainsaws are. Pat O'Brien suggested removing any tree within 60 feet of the green, but I amended that to any tree I could see from the center of the green. I also dropped any sweet gums within five miles of the course. At first, I was labeled a tree serial killer, but when the members forgot the trauma, and they always did, kind of like, you know, women seem to forget the trauma of childbirth and then have another kid. Men never forget pain like that. We get something caught in a zipper and it'll never happen again. Let's see, I got off track. Oh yeah, have sod ready, drop the tree, grind the stump, and sod it. Yes, you will probably have epic fairy ring, but that's still better than dead greens. Industrial espionage. I used to bribe sales guys to tell me what the big boys were spraying. If they produced a magic formula that, say, Atlanta Athletic was using on their greens, then I'd buy something from them. Maybe a, a quart of something expensive. Then I would try to replicate the formulas. After much testing, I decided that some folks were using way too many inputs and turning the greens into drug addicts. I eventually went to minimal inputs. I quit mowing so low. You'll laugh when you hear I was mowing at 125 and thinking that was too low, but, you know, it was to me. I went back to 140 during the summer and toughed it out, rolling 9, but my golfers were just happy with grass. Which, by the way, I never lost so much as one square inch of bent in Atlanta. Side note, back in 86... I tossed the wily rollers and went with smooth rollers on the triplex. Yes, none of this would keep you employed now, but we live in cycles and patterns, not a straight linear timeline. Okay, more turf blasphemy. I broke the rules by overseeding in new bent every August, and not the same stuff I was growing. Theory here was if I got hit by some new disease, like take-all or whatever, then Darwin's rule took over and whatever survived was meant to live there. Yes, my greens looked blotchy, like British Open greens, but I loved it. Also, I didn't care what the rules were. I had grass. And by the way, the recent fetish involving calling it the open borders on that weird wokey pronoun insanity. I cut back on verticutting. I always hated giving up grass I might need later. I did use a hydrojack, which worked wonders. Two greens a day, especially the ones on life support, and over a two-week period, I'd get them all. Cored twice a year, spring and fall, and went deep maybe every few years. The hydrojet could also serve as a roller, as the only roller we had back then was stolen from the clay tennis courts. You filled it with water and pushed it across the green and it did nothing whatsoever. With the hydrojet, once or twice a week, we set it on position four, no hoses, you know, because that was high speed, and we rolled, say, the front side, and we didn't mow, although I did tell the pro shop we mowed. You know, I got to keep more grass and everything was just tickety-boo. We didn't spray much, but when we did, it was usually Primo with iron to avoid the discoloration. Not so much for my taste, but to suppress the whiners in the men's association. Tried different label rates, but going heavy or light wasn't that beneficial on my greens, so I just followed the label rules. Spraying usually triggered whining from Buddy or me, so we had to really want to spray. It was rarely done just because other superintendents were spraying five days a week. I acquired a four-tine pitchfork and implemented the poke-and-soak detail, wherein the wilt watcher was ordered to seek out and poke hydrophobic areas on the greens. A quick soaking of that spot followed, but it had to be done by 0-800 hours so as not to extend the disease window. I did not follow the infrequent but deep irrigation commandment. It simply did not apply on non-percolating adobe greens. Adobe greens are bricks with thin, fuzzy toppings, kind of like uh, my scalp. I did not use gear-driven sprinkler heads because they were too slow to spritz greens in between foursomes on hot, heavy play days. Instead, I used the old Rainbird 51 heads with the spring tightened so they spun like Dorothy Hamill on meth and allowed me to miss the greens between foursomes. 
Of course, the golfers would howl like devils when they saw the greens getting water because it changes the speed and it's not fair. But I didn't give a hooey because I'd rather listen to them howl than sit home unemployed. Which reminds me, that advice about it's their course, not yours, that didn't apply in my world because if you aren't famous like Ken Mangum or Mark Hoban, there's another rule. It's called, you were in charge when those greens went bad, not us, so this will forever and ever, amen, follow you until the grave and even be carved on your gravestone that you once lost an area the size of a ping pong ball on a green you were responsible for. And were summarily executed. May not be your golf course, but it's your reputation at stake, not theirs. Another secret that came out of rock bottom in 1984 was wilt predictor glasses, the kind that block Blu-rays. I invented this technique by accident while checking on the course on a hot summer weekend day. Seeing through my special deluxe cycling goggles, the greens were burning up. After yelling at future superintendent Pat Stewart about the greens looking like pits of fiery lava, I noticed they looked fine without the goggles. Later on that day, the spots I had seen through the goggles lit up like a campfire, and Pat thought I was either a time traveler or had some special powers. From then on, I wilt-watched exclusively with those glasses. The moral of this dissertation is this. At some point in golf world, you might be forced to operate without a lot of support like you have now. Yes, I know you can't hire the necessary workforce, but I'm talking about skeletal here, when it's maybe you and two others to get through a tough time. You'll know times are tough when you drag your spousal unit and offspring to the course and teach them to ride a triplex. It's happened before, and it will happen again. Over the years, the mad golf prophet has made a number of predictions. It's time for... The last prediction. My friends, way back during the middle of the one course a day surge, I made a prediction, but I also made a mistake. The kind that many of those trying to guess the future make. I selected a date. I just didn't see how the real estate golf boom could continue, even though it was being swept along by the illegitimate housing explosion. You remember, people without sufficient means being given expensive houses and told all they had to do was pay the interest but not the principal? I picked 2005 as the year the housing banking witchery would peak and collapse. But the financial wizards fooled me. They, they kept kicking that can until 07. That's when we saw the first sign, the Lehman Brothers becoming entangled in the vast commercial real estate implosion. One of my predictions came true enough that of a sudden halt in building new courses, as well as the next surge, which would surely be renovations of existing golf courses, just to keep the architects and builders solvent. The virus and its unintended consequences caught everyone off guard, even me. The number of golfers were estimated by business pros at near 30 million at one time, but they were using statistics, not truth, much like the numbers of today's crisis. When it became obvious that the actual number of golfers was closer to 20 million, that was sobering news, since the rise in total population meant that golf was stagnant, holding at the same level since roughly 1970, while the overall population doubled. Do the math, and it really means that we're at half the strength of 50 years ago. But the virus helped golf come back, yet like before, the money people, the financial priests, took control of the situation and raised green fees, initiation fees, other costs. And instead of taking advantage of the window of opportunity to create 10 million new golfers, they chose to drain as much money and blood as possible from the potential new golfers. It's called skeletal golf theory because my family, a group of golf pros, superintendents, and military vets, were all skilled in running golf courses with minimal budgets. We specialized in affordable golf, but our old school methods probably won't work anymore. 
you know, because of things like the cult of customer service and the worship of unattainable grooming standards. You know, as I look back, I shouldn't have named it Augusta Syndrome. I should have called it Color TV Golf. As an industry driven along by fierce competition for members and daily golfers, we spoiled the golfers like a bunch of brats given too much, too fast. I told you all that to tell you the next part. There are a great many of you in the golf industry who understand economics. And you also understand the madness being foisted upon us by the central banks of the world. The currency is debased and things have become unstable. Golf will take another hit. And I'm taking this last opportunity to suggest that you prepare a contingency plan to get through the tough parts of what's coming. When? Well, I'm not making that mistake again. But there are factors in play, serious factors converging, that could do a great deal of damage to golf. What factors? Well, some are obvious, like a president claiming that a $3.5 trillion bill will be $0 and no cost. You know, if that was true, why worry about a spending limit? We don't have the same economy we had 30 years ago. Now our productive capacity is led by housing and finance. Housing seems to be driven by population surges. As newcomers move to the urban areas and displace those residents who move outward away from the city and displace the suburban dwellers who move out into the exurbs and in the rural areas and, well, yeah, that's history. As populations grow, they spread out and displace other folks. But during this next wave of spreading out, can you guess where some of the land will come from? The, the land that will allow all this new housing? Perhaps you should read John Reitman's story about California's effort to turn muni courses into affordable housing. There's a lot crammed into that story if you study it closely. And golf is not just the target for housing. After the virus drumbeat slows down, the next big media freakout will be the climate emergency. Don't think they won't single out golf as a villain, no matter how much we've done to comply with and take the lead on environmental issues. In skeletal golf, we learn to adjust to changing times. Like back in 73 during the big oil crisis, we adapted to very little gasoline, to shortages of fertilizer and spray products, we adapted to what became the energy crisis, the first big one. We were told no Christmas lights that year. Stop charging all those electric carts so much. And that reminds me, when I worked in television, we had lots of batteries to keep up with. Camera batteries, lighting batteries, monitor batteries. John Reitman's recent piece on California's plan to ban small engines is interesting along this same line. This plan will result in you caring for a lot of batteries. I mean a lot of batteries. You'll have to concentrate on standardizing and setting up secure charging stations so that equipment will be ready to go the next morning. Because you can't sit around waiting on batteries to charge while golfers are swarming the front. So how do we adapt to the next phase? You know, my brother Mike ran White Oak Golf Club in Noonan, Georgia for just under $500,000 a year. And that was 36 holes. The standards on White Oak were good enough that the GSGA wanted to hold a bevy of tournaments there, and although one of the 18-hole courses was not terribly popular due to architectural weakness, Mike turned huge numbers, well over 60000 He knew how to keep the cost down because he grew up on a hard muni with a minimal budget. And the question is, will your course be in trouble? Probably, but it depends on how far we let the professional politicians go and how well we adapt to their demands. The courses at the mid-level will be the first to weaken. Wealthy courses will probably be okay. Worst case scenario, they might sell off nine holes for housing. The lower level courses won't all vanish just because the lesser advantage won't be able to afford golf. The lower level courses will pick up those fleeing from the too expensive to maintain middle clubs or the CCFADs. I saw this happen at Rock Bottom in 09. We picked up players from country clubs and management groups who failed to realize people didn't want to pay for things like mandatory bar tabs 
especially when they weren't drinking. One more thing. Back in April of 2020, I wrote a piece on the potential for supply line disruption and the effect it could have on golf and our overall economy. I attached it to a film from 2019 titled An Important Rerun, where I discussed the value of cross-training employees as I did not see the workforce problem fixing itself anytime soon. Here's the basic skeleton of that piece. The film included an important strategy taken from special ops for creating a sustainable labor force capable of withstanding a major economic adjustment. Although the film encountered resistance, possibly due to normalcy bias, the virus demonstrated how easily a recession can surface, especially in our overly complex economic structure. Along with the downturn comes another unexpected consequence, that being a disruption in supply lines. From a military viewpoint, when supply lines are cut relatively close to the area where the supplies are needed, the effects are felt immediately. Those same effects, like shortages, panic buying, and the rest, can be corrected pretty quickly when the lines are restored. But when supply lines are cut far away from the area of operations, the effects are not felt right away. However, when the shortages do begin, they typically last a long time, no matter how quickly the situation at the point of the cut was remedied. Our current supply lines are very long, with huge percentages of things we need coming from Asia. Whether it's machine parts or pharmaceuticals, which, by the way, supposedly 90% of the pharmaceuticals are produced in China. Anyway, whether it's a disruption of several months might require twice that time to return to previous levels. Like many of you, I monitor the various business indexes, although I tend to ignore the big ones as they seem more like theater. Some are heavily manipulated, probably just to keep ignorant common folk like myself calm. But there's one index that indicates what's happening in the supply lines. It's called the Baltic Dry Index. While it's too complex for my simple mind, this index measures cargo ships, costs, demands, and other factors related to shipping. Back in April of 2020, the Baltic Dry was really very low. You could even say catatonic. It brings to mind what H. Ross Perot said in 92 about that giant sucking sound, a reference to losing American jobs on the altar of globalism. If we had listened, perhaps we might have retained a greater share of production here in the U.S., and that would mean shorter supply lines and a stronger tax base and a busy workforce. What should we do? Well, you need to prepare contingency plans by wargaming with your staff, looking for ways to offset supply line shortages. Don't wait for the board of directors and their accountants to show up demanding to know where the budget cuts are and what priority levels have been established. Opportunity often presents itself in tough times. I suspect there are a number of brilliant, innovative individuals in this industry who could step in and design, fabricate, and produce what's needed, especially if they didn't have to compete with corporate slave labor from a communist country. Local and regional production could solve the problems of global supply line disruption and perhaps even bring improvements in quality and manufacturer accountability. If we find ourselves in a serious economic reset, let's not give in to self-pity and moaning about what we lost. Let's look for opportunities. Let's fix things. Maybe start with that just-in-time inventory philosophy thought up by accountants incarcerated in airless cubicles. It's story time. Yes, rock-bottom story time at Halloween with pumpkins and frost and the harvest and overseed. So come along with me into the near future for a really spooky story. Soon, when our economy has been reimagined, we'll see that Rock Bottom Country Club has been renamed and transformed. Rock Bottom, now known as the Olinsky Club, has new leaders, and they've purged Mama and Willie. With younger, smarter minds in control, trained in modern collectivism, things have changed. All right, I'm here. What do you need now? 
Can you tell me what this is? It's a cup changer. That's how you make the holes in the green. Show me how it works. Go move those holes. The government put you in charge. You should already know how to work it. Now, Mama, as the Fairness, Inclusion, Retroactive Environmental Equity Program for Internal Transition states... I believe it would be easier if you just said the acronym. As the Fiery Pit states, you are required by law to help us run this golf course. That ain't my pronoun. You have to refer to me as Big Beastie Girl. Now, let me get this straight. You eminent domain my golf course away from me. And now you want me to come back and run it for free? Well, we can't get anyone to show up and work. Mama, uh, I mean, uh, big beastie girl, we need to go. Hey, you there. You know how to work this? Uh, sure. Uh, let's go, BBG. Hold it. Under the Fiery Pit Act, you're required to keep this golf course going. For the greater good. The greater good. Really? I hear you have 55 employees now. Why do you need me? Well, none of them will show up. Why? Because I got offended. Who got offended? Cletus and Ludell. They got mad when they found out I was paying the new people more than them. Were these new folks more experienced than Cletus and Ludell? No, they never worked on a golf course. In fact, they never had a job at all, but under the Fire Pit Act, they had a greater need than Cletus and Booth and Ludell, so I paid them twice as much. Even if they don't show up? Well, yes, that's the fairness and equity part. Hey, while you're here, show me how to start that mower. I I can't. The Fiery Pit Act banned gasoline. That's a gas mower. I hereby invoke the Program for Internal Transition Edict and order you to go out there and operate this golf course successfully. You do, do you? Do you know what this is? Some kind of metallic disc? It's a frying pan, and I'm about to whoop you upside. Uh, hold, hold it, big beastie girl. I need you to help me crank this mower. I will not. I'm tired of complying with every little demand these unelected parasites. No, 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 no. Come on. Tell you what, we'll be right back. What, what was your name again? Himmel. Acting Golf Commandant Himmel. Sounds like Himmler to me. Okay, okay. We'll be right back. I refuse to help them. Hush, just get in the truck. Quick. I thought we were going to help them run the golf course. Remember President Reagan's story about the Soviet commissar visiting the potato farm and the farm manager said, We've had a great year, commissar. If we piled up all the potatoes we grew, they would touch the feet of God. And then the Soviet commissar said, Comrade, there is no God in the Soviet Union. And the farm manager said, Yeah, well, there's no potatoes either. I don't get it. Under the new rules, we have to help them. How does that story help? We're helping them by not enabling them anymore. We've got to let them see the truth. There is no golf course. I would have gone with the emperor had no clothes story. You want to write this stuff? Wait, where are you going? You've been listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. 